This episode of The Bill Murphy Show brought to you by Zapiti, the definitive high-quality audio-video media player that also stores all of your 4K video and high-def audio. The 2018 Sound & Image Awards winner of Product of the Year and two-time Best of Show winner at Cedia. Get all you need to know at zapiti.us.com. That's Z-A-P-P-I-T-I dot dot com. What do you think's in store for the Canadians this year? Well, I was talking to Pierre Maguire. I don't know if you know me. He works for NBC as an analyst Of course there. I know who Pierre Okay, so I was talking to Pierre when I saw him a couple of weeks ago. And because uh, I'm kind of friends with a lot of the guys in the, in the sports scene here in Montreal. So wait a minute. I can reveal to hockey fans that Pierre Maguire is a Frank Marino fan? Yes. Oh, <laughs> he love is. that. I love that. <laughs> he is, yes. <laughs> and uh, Mitch Melnick runs a, runs a sports show here in Montreal, which is, deals with hockey quite a bit. And I was with Bob Gainey, actually. Uh, at this thing for Mitch the other night. So hockey's always been a big part of my life. You know, having grown up in Montreal, I was a Habs fan until 1989, and then I became a hockey fan. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Bill Murphy Show. The stories behind the music. Yep, season two. What am I saying, season two? Season 19, episode two. Not a really literally our 19th season just calling it season 19 because it's 2019 our seasons have been scattered throughout various years in different forms but it's all music all the time now on the bill murphy show the stories behind the music episode two is a continuation of our discussion with frank marino and it is a chance for me to talk to one of my heroes we got to hear a lot of things that i wondered for many years trying to expose the newer generations of guitar player fans to Frank Marino's work because he should be among the list of uh, great rock guitar players that you've heard of if he isn't already. And now we're going to dig in deep into the new release. This DVD, six hours of pristine audio video that you can buy independently from Frank at mahoganyrush.com, mahoganyrush.net. That's the only way to get it, and we're trying to keep it that way so Frank can gather enough funds to go back out on the road. This collection... Well, let me ask you a couple of questions, if you don't mind. Please. I would love that. When you watch this DVD, first of all, did you watch the Blu-ray? Because it's better looking than the DVD. Uh, I haven't even opened the DVD box. It's just been the Blu-ray, yeah. Okay. When you watched this DVD, did you get a sense that it was intimate? Uh, It's, okay, so I just got a 75-inch 4K TV, and uh, I increased my TV size in my living room by 25 inches, and that was like almost the first thing I watched on it. I have a new soundbar and a subwoofer that's behind my couch. It's tuned perfectly. And I had four or five guys watching it. So when we cranked it up, there was so much headroom on it that I didn't, it got to a point where I thought it was going to be distorted and it wasn't. The answer to the question is it literally feels, and I'm, again, this is going to sound like I'm just trying to sell the damn thing, but uh, it's true. It, it feels and looks like you're standing at the other edge of my living room with your band, just playing in the room. It's that intimate. It's I don't know why you asked the question, because I think that's uh, obvious. Well, I asked that because I tr- I mixed it differently than my other albums. I mixed it with the intention of being what I hear where I stand, rather than from the point of view of the guy in the fifth row or the tenth row or the balcony. Well, then that would explain the little comment I was just going to make, and that was listening to the drums... Um, I thought that the drums sounded a little more intimate and a little more close than Correct. they than they would have if I was in the 
in the hall that night. But now that you're mentioning it, they do sound like they would if I was on stage next to you. Right, because you're a vocalist, so you know what it is to right. be at center stage. You know that weird sound we get when we're there. It's like a little more drums than right. the rest of the band, and you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that so that's, sound, right? that's exactly what I heard, and that's that's the thing where I thought, you know, I, I've, I've always been a fan of music that has the drums mixed, very have a lot of emphasis in the mix, because that really is, it's especially when it's mixed, and when I say mixed, I mean treated, EQ'd and compressed the right way, it can be so loud but not abusive to your ears. It's just is, is still so energy and you yeah, got not all, harsh. That's yeah, all not there. Harsh. That, that's yeah. all there, Frank. It's it's I mean it's exactly what you thought you wanted it to sound like because I can hear it as you ask the question, I'm like, well, yeah, of course, that's what it sounds like. An interesting thing happened to me. John Fogarty came through town here and a lot of times when people come through town, the guitarist will call me up uh, so Frank Hannon from Tesla came over oh, and cool. guys come over, you know, like they do that. That's awesome. And so the, the guy from John Fogarty's band a while ago, this was a year or more ago. He, he says, Oh, I'm in town. I'd like to know if we can get together. I says, well, I'm not going to go out, but if you want to come over, you can come over and I'll show you what I'm working on. So, you know, he came over and I showed him, you know, parts of the DVD. And he said to me something very strange at the time. He, he looks at me and he goes, he goes, well, Frank, you know, you can't really put it out this way. I said, why? He said, well, it kind of sounds like an album, like it, like it's really clear. I said, well, yeah, shouldn't it be? He goes, well, it's supposed to be live. I said, well, it is live. You're looking right at it. It's live, you know? He says, yeah, but it sounds too good. And I thought that was like such a weird thing. It's almost like we expect our live records to not sound like records, well, and yet they're records. Right. <laughs> it is a record. I, I agree with you, and I know exactly what he means when he says that, and when I put myself in some other objective sort of shoes, and I can think from that viewpoint, and I can understand where that, I don't know if I'd even call it a criticism, but it, where that would come from, because it does sound, um, it's like I said about the vocals before, it almost sounds too polished, and I almost, I did want to say to you, I don't care if you ended up redoing some of those vocal tracks in the studio because it doesn't matter. The product is perfect. And I'm telling you, everybody does that today, Frank, anyway. So why not? You know? Well, the end result is always going to be, is the record good? Right. Right? Exactly. That's the end result. And we're not, I'm not selling a performance. I keep trying to make that point. You said a comment I'd like to make. Look, people think of me as Frank the guitarist. I'm not a hyphenated guy. I'm Frank. I happen to be a guitarist. Yeah. I also happen to be a drummer, and I also happen to be an electronics guy. So oh, I'm not a hyphenated guy. So <laughs> I, what am I giving people with this DVD? It's not a question of making a DVD so people could see how Frank plays guitar. Forget Frank and his guitar. It's about the songs. It's about the sound. Right. It's about the actual sound of the music, the sound of it. And how it's it's put forward, honestly put forward as sound. I was in a meeting once when we were doing a big, big outdoor festival where you have to have secondary sound towers, okay? Uh-huh. And when you have secondary sound towers, the first towers have to be time-aligned to be delayed right. so that the sound arrives at the second tower in phase, okay? Right. So I happened to ask this question. Who's doing the sound? Is it going to be Shoko? Is it going to be a TFA Electrosound? Whoever, right? And they said so-and-so. And I said, what are they doing about the sound tower delay? Blah, blah, blah. That whole point. 
And some guy turns around, a musician from another band, and he says, Ah, oh, you, you're always talking about the sound. And I was dumbfounded because it was like, what are we selling if not sound? Wow. I mean, you know, maybe you're selling a performance, but I don't give a damn about my performance. My I... performance is just me playing notes and trying to phrase stuff like a, like a vocalist would. So I don't care about whether I flub something or there's a bad note or or whether I did it great or not. I care about the overall sound. And I think, I think correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's what people care about. I get dumbfounded sometimes <laughs> in this uh, audio-video world because I end up doing a lot of, well, a little bit of uh, audio for video, and I realize that the people that produce video these days really don't take into consideration how important the sound is because... Yeah. Obviously, psychologically and physically, if you have great sound on a video, your video is going to look better. It just yeah. that's how yeah. it works, and people don't. They I don't think they they hold the audio part of their uh, business in as high a regard as they should. Yeah, and if you're going to do picture of any kind, like movies, music is important. Mm -hmm. But the music in that case, in the case of a movie. The music serves as a background to give you an emotional feeling from the picture. But in the concert, the picture only serves as a background to give you a feeling to the music. Yeah. It's, it's the reverse. Yeah, we went, we built the, uh, the, the, the arena that the Panthers play in. It's called BB&T Center now. But about, about 10 or 15 years ago, more like 15, they, had, they wanted to revamp the, the scoreboard. So they got one mm -hmm. of those new deluxe wraparound giant monstrosity scoreboards center hung in the arena and they're putting it up and everybody's all excited about it. And the season opened and, uh, you know, then they started noticing that the sound system, which they decided not to upgrade, right. you know, sounded like crap. And yeah. their videos that they were producing as dynamic as they were, all these swishes and swooshes and bass drops and all this stuff that wasn't coming through. The sound wasn't, uh, translating it. And I said, you guys, your, <laughs> your scoreboard's going to look 20 times better if you get a new sound system. That's right. <laughs> So that's why I asked you that question, Bill. Yeah. You know, did you get that feeling of on-stage intimacy, which is what I was trying to create with this mix? And I, I did do different techniques. I will tell you that. I did change my mixing techniques specifically for that. Okay. even changed my level adjustments as to what I would do to broadcast level. I got to tell you, it's almost too much. It's almost, I mean, I love it. I appreciate it. But the, the intimacy is, you're right there. I mean... And another thing I want to tell somebody, actually in particular my friend Willie, who was also on the Frank Marino page and was hemming and hawing about getting the DVD because he loves, he told me he loves to watch what you're playing and kind of learn from it and see what you're doing. And he didn't think that the answer had enough shots of the fretboard. And um, I'm here to tell you, Willie, in the rest of the DVD, there's plenty of fretwork to be seen. There's um, almost too much. Oh, yeah. almost, I'm almost surprised some of it you let out there because, you know, it's like, oh, that's what he's doing. Yeah. I got a tiny little detail that, that came out at the end of the answer that I always loved was something that you do. And I don't even know how to describe it. There's a sound that you're able to get out of your guitar. And I remember it in some live moments before, but it's, and I'm trying to remember a studio song that actually had this effect on it. But while you're holding the very final chord out in the answer, Dave's done all his flourishings and you're just about to come down for the final crash. Your 
fingers are about halfway up the fretboard and you sort of go backwards with it like there's this feedbacking sort of like uh, you're descending four notes it's you're going down but then they're creating feedback while you're doing it and the last one I think is like a ninth or something and it's just I don't know if I'm even oh, describing it I know the it chord correct. you mean. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly the chord you mean. It's a picked out nine. Yeah, it's so, a picked out nine. But yeah, you're going like backwards the, and doing this little run that sort of gets a little feedback build on it right before you stop it. And it's just feel like that's one of the signatures of your sound is that... Uh, yeah, that's I've been doing that for many, many years. Yeah, yeah. Is that something yeah. you just stumbled upon? While no, you, it's just a habit. It's... Uh, you think of it like, um, you know, as a vocalist, how could I put it? you may do a certain type of um, tail end on certain lines sure, that you do. Sure. And it's just habitual, a habitual tail end, you yeah, know? Yeah. It's that kind of a thing. It's, it's a, an inflection. All right, I'm going to sort of surprise you here, okay? Mm-hmm. Just hang on with me for a minute. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pick you up on this phone here. Hello. Hello, is this Dave? This is he. Dave, Frank Marino and Bill Murphy on the phone with you. Oh, lucky me. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Dave. <laughs> Frankster. Dave. The Davester. <laughs> oh. The Frankenator. Dave yeah. Good says that you uh, refer to him sometimes as, as uh, not so. Yeah, not so. Not so good. <laughs> oh, no, he's great, though. <laughs> You, you know, you guys, I got I to gotta tell you, I was kind of in fear of doing this because I did this behind Frank's back, kind of got in touch with uh, Dave ahead of time. But then I thought to myself, hmm, what if these guys are like not talking now or something oh, no, or, or their talking. band is in some sort of a feud? No, we're best friends. <laughs> we can't get rid of each other now. This nope. is Dave Good, the drummer of, um, I guess, what you would call the modern version of Mahogany Rush that's on with uh, Frank at the Live at the Agora DVD. Uh, Dave, i got to hand it to you. It's some of the best drum work I've ever seen, and I'm a big fan of drummers, and I know that that's, uh, that sentiment's been shared uh, a lot online lately as well. Well, I have to thank Frank for that. I can thank him in person. This is kind of odd. I can Thanks for making me sound so good, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't that hard with you, Dave. <laughs> it's not that hard. Dave's a very interesting character. I, I just told him this the other day, and I'm going to tell the whole world. All the years that I've known him, now this is unusual. I've known Dave since 89, 90. So I think Dave's actually been with me longer than anyone ever has. Wow. And I've never once seen Dave get angry. Now, how many of you people have a friend that's so close to you for so many years that you've never once seen get angry? That's Dave Good. He's so chill. He's the absolute perfect guy to have in a band. And let me tell you, when you can do a show for, you know, be playing for almost 12 hours and then get him to do his drum solo at the end of that night <laughs> and not complain, that's a pretty chill dude. Well, that's pretty uh, high praise there, Dave. You mean I have the option of complaining? Yeah, you do. You didn't know that, huh? <laughs> okay. I didn't know that. I didn't know I had seniority enough to complain. See, yeah, I'm yeah. thinking that it was just an ultra high level of respect that he's showing you, Frank, when he's around you. So maybe he is, uh, you know, outside of the band, not so nice. Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't know, but he's certainly good with me. That's for sure. <laughs> Dave, share with me. I'm assuming um, that you grew up as uh, having Frank as a an idol. And what was that? I mean, this is such a typical interview question, but I can't help but ask it. What does it feel like to be on the drum riser behind this guy after probably admiring his work for a lot of years? Well, it's kind of, it's kind of a two answers in one because like I was always a fan and I liked him, but I didn't really like really become obsessed until after I met him. So when I'm on the stage, 
you know, we're there to do business and I have to keep up and it takes what it takes, which is everything I have. But when we're not on stage, then we're friends and we're just messing around and laughing like we are right now. So um, I'd say the obsession started when I saw him because I, I like every era of the band. I'm a total fan. But when I saw him play with Timmy, I became obsessed. Yeah. Like I say, I like everybody. But when you saw that lineup, when they were really on it, that was something to, something to see. And you knew Frank was a drummer. So you probably felt like you were under an even more uh, scrutinous set of eyes. Um, I knew he was a drummer, but we were just friends. Like I liked him. He right. sounded good. He was a nice guy. And so it was kind of like the, it was the music and getting to know each other at the same time. So it wasn't really like a normal rock band where you just show up for a gig to make the money. It wasn't like that. It wasn't, and it isn't like that. There's, I had a small gathering of friends here, uh, a few guitar players, in fact, at my house to unveil the uh, DVD and we cranked it up and did the whole thing. And as good of sound quality as we could have set up in the room. And, I mean, everybody was watching you as much as they were Frank. The, Frank, uh, the, the drums have always been such an integral part of the Mahogany Rush sound and Frank's uh, rhythm section. You seem to have the same type of faces once in a while during the show, sort of listening to Frank, that we do in the audience. He's pulling stuff off and pulling parts together and moving into another part of a song in ways that still blows your mind while you're on stage. That's what it looks well, that's like. Actually the hardest, that's the hardest part is not getting my mind blown. Like, I have to hold it together. So <laughs> I can't freak out too much. I don't get to do that until afterwards. And, but, you're, and you're not even kidding about that. But seriously, like the, way he, like, the way he writes the songs, if you're going to play the songs, then that's the way the drums have to be. So whether it was me or Jimmy or Timmy or Joey or anybody, great drummer that he's had, if it, you just play the songs, that's how the drums are going to sound because... He composed them that way. Right, right. The thing, too, is that, and Dave will tell you this, I'm, I'm like the last guy to tell a drummer, back off. Like, okay. I want them to do stuff because <laughs> I get inspired <laughs> by what they do. I'm just so, laughing because the stuff you're saying is like so obvious to me. I mean, I've, I've watched this stuff and listened to your stuff over the years so many times that I know exactly what you're saying when you say this because this this dynamic that you're describing is apparent when you watch you guys perform. You know? Yeah, I, I think it is very apparent, and, and I think it absolutely has to be apparent. And not I'm not just saying because I want to make a, a great sounding record, or you know I want people to like the guitar, or the drums, or the song, or the band, but the whole point for me, and I think for Dave, is when you're playing music, you want to have fun doing it. You want, to, you want it to always be fresh. Right and not boring or like going through the motions. And the only way that I can do that, and I'm not going to speak for Dave, but I think he seems, feels the same way, is if I have something to listen to. So it's, it's my, whatever I'm going to inflect into a tune, even if I wrote it, even if it's got a certain head that has to be there, or a certain change that has to be there, I have to feel like there's, there's always these little nuances that are going to make me invent something different every time. And you get that by listening to the other guys. You have to listen to the other guys. Too many times, guys get together to jam, and really what they're getting together to do is just wait their turn to do their solo. Right. And right. that's just the kind of dog's breakfast that it turns into. It's, it becomes a mess. Those <laughs> kind of jams I want nothing to do with. And... But when I'm playing with, with you know, my guys who think like, like we all do, 
there's that freshness all the time, you know, whether we do poppy 10 times in a row or 10 different nights, it's going to be different a little bit, just a little bit every time. A new part will enter into a jam that we've done 10 times one way. And all of a sudden, from that point forward, it ends up getting used all the time. Yeah. That's how you grow as a musician. That's what's fun about it. The, and the sound checks are the most fun part because you're not... <laughs> yeah, they are because you're not locked into this, okay, we must do this and we must do that. We can be in a sound check and start doing Frank Sinatra tune, you know, and, and it's fun. <laughs> it's really fun to do it. Where and we do the, do it. Where That's are the bootlegs of that? Please. Oh, I've got 80 hard drives full of stuff. <laughs> And I'm not kidding you. I've got 80 hard drives. I record everything we've done. And I've got 80 hard drives of the same quality as the real live record. Oh, man. And a lot of it is the sound checks, right, Dave? I mean, we would get get the recorder out of the sound checks and just put it into record and do everything. If the whole world is listening, I want them all to know that Frank Marino can play drums just like Ringo. I'm going to go out and say <laughs> Yeah, one of my favorite guys. Yeah, that, that whole Ringo thing, yeah. I just need to self- indulge a little bit and just share with you guys. So if you go back to my teenage years when I first started putting my band together, my brother was a drummer, I was singing, and Mark, the bass player, is still a bass player that I uh, play with out once in a while now. And he was here watching this with me. We must listen to Dragonfly a thousand times. We know every every inch of it from the live album. And <laughs> when we were watching the DVD and the part came up that you shift into the second half of the third verse of Dragonfly after the uh, solo, we were both looking at each other, anticipating the walk up. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah, then yeah, when it came and you guys did oh, just a whole new version, an HD, crystal clear, even better version of that walk up i was like oh they kept even that together that was fantastic Dave. <laughs> yeah those are the signposts that's what i'm talking about right the songs all have those what do you call them watersheds or signposts and 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 when we're playing it's like okay let's get to the next one right but we're, we're trying to invent stuff in between and then we get to that next one and then, okay now let's get to the next one it becomes about the journey yeah. Rather than the destination. The signposts. What a fantastic term. It's exactly how you describe that. And that's what tethers the group together and, and also gives you the ability to have the freedom. You know, like I'm very, very serious when I say this, I really want the drummer to invent and go and, and change things and, you know, do it up. And But as long as he's listening. Right. So if, if he's he... listening and I'm listening we're going to come up with some, some really cool stuff. And it's the same with the bass player. You know, when Peter was playing with us, it was amazing because he had that, also that amazing ear. Remember, Dave, the ear that this guy had was like unbelievable. And you get that when you play with good guys, you feel good at the end of the night. So basically what you're saying is if Dave decides that he wants to start that four bar fill that's coming up, but he wants to start six bars out instead, you're perfectly fine with that because you'll go along with the ride. Well, you have to. Like, it, look, if you're playing with guys that, let's say, don't really have a musicality to them, then obviously you don't want them changing it up ridiculously. There you go. It just sort of wrecks it, right? Right. But you can trust your guys. You know, it's it's very much like like hockey. <laughs> you know, like if you're playing if you're playing left defense and, and the puck goes in the right corner, you you trust that your other guy's going to go get it. You know, you don't go running over there to get it and put yourself out of position. There so, you go. 
if you're playing with good guys, you can trust that they're going to do the right thing like 99 times out of 100. And the odd time that, let's say, it doesn't work or there's a flub or there's a mistake or whatever, well, so what? You know, like it, that's part of life. Like, so what? It just goes by and you're not going to get all bent out of shape over it. Yeah. I wanted to uh, thank Dave Good for joining us for this portion of the interview, man. I kind of caught you off guard this afternoon and you made yourself available tonight. I really appreciate it, brother. Well, Frank catches me off guard every time I do anything with him, so I'm used to it. <laughs> all right. Speaking of that, then, while I have both of you on the phone, another one of the rumors surrounding all the great community of Frank Marino fans, people are just automatically assuming that this uh, DVD, that the funds or some of the funds from the DVD will go toward supporting uh, a possible tour. Can I ask you about that here on the show, and can you reveal anything for me about well, that? I'll, I'll, be, I'll be straight up. And I, I think I just spoke to Dave about this the other night. <laughs> um, if, if, it's a big if. If the thing does, look, we're self, self-doing self everything now. Okay? There's no managers, no record companies. There's no none of that. You don't even have an agent. So if the thing does really well, and I mean really well, then we'll be able to say, okay, we can do that. We can get the gigs. We, you know, I'll be able to have the funding to be able to do that. If it doesn't, then it's not that I don't want to do it, but we won't be able to do it. Right. So really, it's all down to that. It's a big if. If it does really well, then yes, for sure. Buy this DVD because you never know. You could be supporting a, a possible upcoming tour. Yeah, so. it's very possible. And there's another way it could happen. Let's say it doesn't do as w- well enough that I can take the funding and make it happen, but it does well enough that promoters begin to say, hey, this uh, this Mahogany Rush band, maybe we should have them you know, play. And you get enough promoters doing that, then, then it served its purpose that way. If it doesn't do well, like let's say it did really badly, uh-huh. then I could be pretty sure that we're not going to tour again. So <laughs> I'm not even. I'm not that. even going to think about that. And Dave, yeah. so hearing all that, are, are you in if this happens? <laughs> oh, I've been in since the beginning. So I mean, <laughs> yeah. I got everything in place. So I'm ready to go. But I, I, I think the same way Frank does. I, I agree with him in all the way that he decides because I know why he decides. So I'm yes. You, um, what's else, what else is going on with you musically, Dave? Where, where in the meantime, can people hear some of your work and, uh, check out what the other stuff you're working on? Um, I do a lot of cover. I stay busy in town. Most of it's cover stuff. Oh, wow. I play, I play very actively in church in different churches. I'm also in a, a Chicago tribute band. We do some corporate stuff there. Okay. I do everything on Facebook, so if anyone like looks me up, if you see Dave Good posting live, I pretty much post everything I do, good or bad. So you know, but I'm all over it. Dave, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on the show, man. It's a treat, and uh, when I go to that uh, that uh, Frank Marino show, I'll be sure to come by and say hi to you. I'll, I'll come to you. You'll find me. I'll be sweating. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you will. Thanks a lot, buddy. I really appreciate it. All right. We'll see, see you later. later see you later, Dave. Later, dude. And as we let Dave go, I'm going to go ahead and play one more track from the DVD. Now, here's where I'm stuck because I had this, I was narrowing this down to a few different uh, choices. And I've also heard some interviews of yours back in the day and talking about how you feel about some types of songs and others. So I got a little apprehensive and I thought maybe I shouldn't play this one. Maybe I should play this one. So then maybe I'll just throw it at you. Out of all 50 something tracks that are on the DVD, if you had a radio station slot right now on a rock station and could play one of your own songs from the DVD, which one would you play? 
Well, unfortunately, the one I would probably pick would be very long. So I'd probably pick Poppy, but it's 22 minutes, so I don't think you're going to play that. <laughs> well, I was thinking long, somewhere along the uh, long track lines, because I really don't have any time restriction here, so we could do that. I'm thinking, but then... The only thing about Poppy, Bill, is is that Mahogany Rush, you know, or Frank Marino at this point, is very varied. It's not one style. Exactly. I think think you've noticed that. Well, that's what makes the the decision so hard, Frank. Right. It is. You know, because what ends up happening is you play one type of song and they, they say, oh, that's that jazz guy. <laughs> or or play that's, another kind. Oh, that's that psychedelic guy. That's that oh, Hendrix guy. Yeah, yeah, that Hendrix guy. So I really don't know what to tell you in terms of any one song. It's <laughs> it's kind of like giving you a box of mixed chocolates and saying, pick one. Yeah, and I mean, I don't even know if we should play another track. We did play the answer. It's a nice uh, appetizer for the show. And we don't even have to play one. And you know what? Frankly, Frank, maybe we shouldn't play one and make people buy the DVD to hear the rest. Well, that would <laughs> so, be very nice. <laughs> certainly helps. <laughs> I am going to do this. You can't win if you make this decision because you're not going to give a comprehensive example of Frank Marino by just one track or two tracks. So we're going to settle on this. Um, at a, all the moments that I've seen on the DVD uh, and anything that I could compare something to like the rest of the music world or something, your performance of Red House on this... I think is hands down the greatest I've seen by anybody. And that song's been covered so many different ways and so many different kinds of ways with bands over the years. And you've thrown some chords in there that weren't even... What is, what's going on, Frank? Are you singing okay. Red House over a different I, I'm really song? glad you said that. Yes, I am. Okay. And, and that's how it happened. Red House, my <laughs> version, as they say, of Red House, was born on the tour where we did the real live album. Now, remember I told you we invent as we go? Yep. So I started a blues tune, and it's actually my own blues tune, because I've been writing some... I was supposed to do a blues album, and I've been writing special blues tunes for this blues album for a long, long time. So we were playing one night when we were... As a matter of fact, it happened to be the night that became the real live album, and I started one of those blues tunes, but I forgot the lyrics because lyrics is always the last thing I do. Oh, man. So here I'm starting the blues tune, and then, you know, when you get to the end of your intro and you go to sing the first verse, mm-hmm. I realized literally as I'm walking up to the mic on beat three, you know, like waiting for beat four, <laughs> I don't know the lyrics. <laughs> I don't remember them. And it just became Red And House. I went, what do I do? So I just said, oh, there's a Red House over yonder. <laughs> Wow, that's so unbelievable. As soon as, I, as soon as I threw out that first line of there's a red house over yonder, now before the second line, I realized, wait a minute, this is a jazz 16-bar blues. Red house is a 12-bar blues. How am I going to sing the second line? So now as I'm playing it, I start figuring out how to put the lines in, right? Right. And so it be, we do two verses like that. Seems to be working out pretty good. I think you sing the line, Red over yonder, baby. That's where my baby stay only once the yeah, first right. time. Yeah, right. I had to switch it around and sing it at half speed, right? So Because it's 16-bar blues. Uh-huh. So what ends up happening is I end up doing the first couple of verses until the solos. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then during the solo section, for musicians who are going to listen to it, it changes back to a 12-bar blues. Ooh, you uh, love that. I love that Okay, stuff. so halfway through, <laughs> like I play a few 16-bar styles, and then when it gets heavy, when the fuzz goes on and all that stuff, uh-huh. 
Now it's back to the 12-bar version. Uh, right, yes. And so when we come back out for the last verse, I simply sing the last verse of Red House <laughs> in the normal way. Right, right. So, so then I called it Red House, and it's really weird because it's really not Red House other than the lyrics. Well, I had that right then from the beginning when I figured yeah. out that it was two different songs. So we've described it in its entirety, so now let's go ahead and play it and everybody can hear what you just described. So here it is, Red House. This is the only uh, other taste of the DVD you will get from Frank Marino live at the Agora Theater. There's that blues intro that we were talking about and we're off and running on The Bill Murphy Show. True story, yeah. That's how it really happened.
Said there's a red house over yonder, babe
there it is. Frank Marino's version of Red House as heard on the Live at the Agora Theater DVD that has just been released. Guitar fans, Frank Marino and Mahogany Rush fans rejoicing all over the world with this release. And again, sounding uh, crystal clear with the Zapiti player. Thanks to the Zapiti folks for supplying me with that awesome Zapiti 1SE media player. Stores all of your Blu-ray and DVD information, plays the audio back in pristine quality. That's what we used to play it back on the show like that. What a treat to have Frank pick apart that song and show us how it came together, sort of by mistake, with two different uh, blues songs. 58 tracks in all in that DVD, but it's also a great book. It's that book about Frank Marino that you've been waiting for over the years. You can't call it a book. It's 180 pages. It's a few hours read, and it's very entertaining and tells you the whole story. And there is an entire story behind how this DVD came together. And you do mention some things about divine intervention. You talk about coincidences and just things falling together for, I don't know, what otherwise would seem like no apparent reason. And I just related to that so well. I think everybody can to some degree in their own life, but I feel like my career has had you know, sparkles of magic moments like that where things just fell together. And so many things like that happened during the process of making this DVD. Um, you call it folklore? Is that a good word for it? Well, I, I'm a very religious person, okay? I'm a very, very dedicated Christian. So to me, I look at the whole world through that prism. I'm constantly looking at everything that happens in the world, including my world, as somehow having a connection to that. And this particular, um, let's say, episode of this DVD there was a lot of that that made it part of this. And had it not been for my feelings about those things and my belief about that, I probably wouldn't have ever fixed it and taken the eight years it took me to do it. Oh, uh, it yeah. was that, you know, that I had promised to do it. And because I had promised to do it, I didn't think it would take eight years when I said I promise I'll fix it because it was terribly damaged. You mean by that that you promised to yourself as well? No, I promised to God, ah, not to myself. Okay. Because I felt a gratitude. The way that this came about, it was not supposed to happen. And in a series of events, which I describe in the book, brought it about. And when it did get brought about because of the series of events, I did not yet know that there was going to be a problem with it. Right. So I was so grateful for having the people had come and done this for me. Bruce Springsteen's crew came and did this for me. They didn't charge me. It was just a, a gift, you know? Mm -hmm. I was so grateful for that gift that I spent like two days thanking God for it. Wow. And then I found out that it needed to be fixed. Okay, so I'm going to meld those two parts together here, and we're going to get into this, because this is where the, the, the I don't know how far you want to go with it, but where the real geeky, techie, nerdy audio file stuff begins, and we're going to have a conversation about that, but this part that you just talked about, everything coming together, I thought one of the best parts of the book, and something that I would like to leave out there so that people can read it in the book, because it's such a great experience to read from your words in the book that I don't think we should even spoil it now, but that coming together of the, the guys, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his name, the director from the video from Bruce Springsteen's crew. Yeah. Yeah. Peter Daniel, Peter, he, the way he d was a fan and put all this together and how people were in the right place. Was, again, I'm giving away too much. That's a 
that's it's just a magical part of the book to read. So I'm going to leave that open. But the biggest story behind this release and the almost nine years that it took was the drums. When one reads the part that you describe about what the tracks looked like after you opened up the sessions, it can make any audio engineer's heart sink. So let's yeah. not give away too much, but explain if you can what that moment felt like. Oh, punch in the stomach. Really, like, just, can this be even happening? Am I dreaming? Like, is it possible? Like, look, I've had I've had major musical disappointments before. I One of the greatest ones that ever happened to me, talk about a punch in the stomach, was when at the end of the 80s, I, I built a studio in the hopes of taking all my old tapes and remixing them. Oh, wow. So I went to a studio that had stored all my tapes from my whole career, Two Inch Masters. And when I went to get them, they were gone. Come on. And I only found out that the girl who worked the studio at night was selling time without telling anyone to local bands, and she was selling tape for them to work on oh. and putting the money in her pocket. Oh, no. And because my tapes were there, and I had hundreds and hundreds of them, they, she was selling those tapes thinking they'd never be used for anything. Oh, my No God. one would ever notice. That's a tragedy. So I get to the studio... It's a tragedy. And I find out that my entire career was raced. Oh, wow. So that was quite a punch in the stomach. To, to have gone through that, uh, I couldn't think of another musician in history that had lost every master tape. And it could never, ever mix them again. You're talking about the two-inch 24? Yeah, all the 24s, yeah. Oh, my God. So when that happened to me, I was devastated. And when this happened to me, it was the same feeling. Not only that, but here you are about to embark on uh, assembling something that would have actually sort of resurrected that old library of your career because now right. you have new recordings of the songs. You've kept the arrangements intact for the most part. You, But only some of them. Right, that's what the I mean. The tapes but, I lost encompassed everything I ever did. Oh, man. I was, <laughs> I was, trying, to take <laughs> some, I was trying to take some solace in this thing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But, man, I mean, it's just a, it's, it's a, heartbreaking feeling to know now okay now i'm going to throw a couple of the questions at there that i'm glad i can't see you because i'm sure you'll be rolling your eyes questions you've probably heard a thousand times that armchair engineers would ask you about this so i have to at least ask you why you didn't consider having dave re-record his parts in the studio and watch the video i guess that would be the most common question someone would throw at you well, it's impossible. It's literally impossible. Because if Dave was playing, you know, like Charlie Watts and, you know, playing Satisfaction, yes, that's exactly what you'd do. But the nature of almost every single song on this record or in this DVD is almost fusion drumming. There's nothing of... is, yeah, it's, there's ghost notes and nothing is in perfect time. You know, everything is like all over the place. I mean, right. it's just complete freeform. You didn't think that you could immerse him in like just... It, it's literally impossible. You would, you would, you'd get some parts. Right. And you'd miss other parts. So it'd be like, you'd see this, this picture that when he'd show up on screen, he'd be hitting a symbol when he's not hitting a symbol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I you know? obviously... So it yeah. was literally impossible. I, yes, I thought, of course I thought of it. And had it been an audio record, that's exactly what I would have done. Oh, there you go. I never even thought of that. With an audio but record, I it would have been a lot I didn't know when he'd show up on screen. Right. I hadn't seen the video. I hadn't seen the cuts that the director had made. Right. And so when I resolved to fix it, 
I I purposely didn't watch the video. And you couldn't know what those cuts were because they hadn't didn't have anything to edit to yet anyway. So. Yeah, so it was just really I I was faced with only choices. Mm-hmm. And believe me, I contacted uh, software engineers, I contacted companies that specialized in drum replacement, stuff like that. Right. Everybody that looked at the samples said just forget it. It can't be done. It's too destroyed. There's no triggers. It's right. like there's nothing to go off of. Because I guess they would have told you if there was any sort of distortion from the kick and snare, at least, that they could have transformed that into MIDI and then replaced yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what drum placement software does. And even at that, it wouldn't have tracked him right. properly because he's just too many notes, right. too many ghost notes, and too many symbols, and too many everything else. Too many different velocities of hits. Yeah, yeah. and everything. So, so really, at that point, I was faced with only two choices throw it all away, or try to fix it manually. And so, as the story goes, correct me if I'm wrong, you had Dave come in and sample all the, the drums that were used that night and the cymbals. I, I sampled them. Oh, you did? Okay. Yes. So, oh, so those are your hits? Yeah. Interesting. How does Dave feel about that? I wish oh, I had him on. Yeah, he, he's would... fine with it. I mean, <laughs> I, had to, I, had to take, I had to take all the right, all the same drums. I had to to get all every possible combination of how you would hit something. Basically, I created a database of, of all my sounds, and then I created a system by which to put them in. And I had no guide, right? Right. right. So I realized that I could use the leak from the microphone, the vocal mic, as a guide to tell me what he was playing. Yeah, thank God that was there. So using that as my guide, I would listen to it and I would say, I think that's a five-stroke roll on his tom, and I think he's hitting the second tom. I would discern it from the sounds and the pitches, you know? Oh, wow. And then I would start laying in the parts and, you know, one literally bar. I figured the best way to do this is a bar at a time. Sure. You know, don't try to think of it as full songs or, you know, don't go ahead and try to do the whole snare drum, the whole song. Do just a bar. I guess the obvious next question is how sick of these songs are you after hearing so many parts so many times? I mean, did you grow weary of listening to them? Talking about hearing yourself over and over again. The funny thing about that is I think God gave me the strength to do it because when it was actually all done after the seven years or whatever, I didn't feel like any time had passed like it more than a day or two. Oh, that's then, then, then that was so, divine intervention. My so friend. I live, but it's kind of, it's the way I live, Bill. I, I, I live one day at a time. I really do. I know people use that expression, you know, one day at a time, yeah. live for the moment and all that stuff. But I really do that. I mean, when I get up in the morning, it, I'm born. And when I go to bed at night, I say, thank you very much. I'm ready to die. So I live one day because the logic behind how I look at it is this. Every day that ever comes, you always only experience it as if it's today. Yeah. So it's always today. So if somebody comes and he tells me, like, you'd be pretty shocked if someone walked up to you and said to you, you're going to die today. Right. But the fact is, when they do tell you, that is exactly what they'll say. And it'll be today. It won't be some future day alien to you. You'll feel it as today. That's right. So I live today that way. So if something happened to me yesterday, let's say something does happen to me, and then I go to bed at night. When I get up the next day, it's got the same weight and gravity as if I dreamed it, because it's only in my memory that it happened. See, yesterday's really only in my memory. So what's the difference? I could just tell myself, well, I just dreamed it happened. Mm -hmm. 
You ever get up from a dream and, and it was a freaky bad dream or whatever? You go, oh, thank God that was a dream. Like it wasn't real, right? Right. And you forget about it immediately because you say it was a dream. It, you think it didn't happen. But what if it did happen? Well, it's the same thing. When you get up the next day, it's a dream. Yep. It's got the same gravity, unless it cut your arm off or something, you know, had a lasting effect, then that's different. But most of the things that happened to us happened yesterday. And tomorrow, when it gets here, is always today. So when I sat down to do this, I just said, well, I'm fixing the drums today. And, that, and that's what I said for eight years. And, you know, Christmases came and went, and winters uh, came and went, and summers came and went. There was a cost to it. The cost was, other than the fact that, you know, I didn't earn any money for all those years and I lived on borrowed money, um, in which I'm hoping to pay back, uh, the other cost was my health. When you sit in a chair for 12 hours a day, seven days a week for eight years, you, you pretty much get unhealthy. You got yourself a nice, comfortable chair after a while, I would I imagine. I had four chairs okay. in the time that I did it. Wow. There you go. You know, it was so, a four-chair so, project. Yeah. You know, so when that happens, and people, you know, when they see it, the people that saw it, that said it couldn't be done, look, I mean, the end result is it really, I wasn't trying to make it better than it was. Mm-hmm. It, it, I, that would have been wrong. You know, I was just trying to resurrect what was actually there. It's just a, a, a thrill to talk to you. I, we have to talk now about, um, I didn't see the draft or anything, but what do you got, uh, what do you think's in store for the Canadians this year? Look, I like all hockey. There you go. If it's good hockey. I don't think there's, there's I don't have anything against any team. Um, I'm not like that kind of a fan. I'm really, really a fan of the game. Oh, it's you know, the most beautiful Dryden sport. wrote that book, The Game. Oh, yeah. And, um, and I'm just a fan of the game. Now I was, you know, blessed to grow up as the neighbor of Dickie Moore and, you know, oh, wow. to know the kid, you know, his kid was my friend and stuff. And so I, you know, I love, of course I liked the Canadians, you know, it was 19, it was the fifties and the sixties yeah. and the seventies. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, once I stopped being an absolute diehard Habs fan, <laughs> I just became a kind of a hockey fan. Yeah. Cause then you didn't get frustrated. You could just appreciate the beauty of the sport. I love the game, <laughs> but I don't love what the game's become. Uh huh. So I'm a smash mouth hockey guy, you know, I'm a Canadian player. So I don't believe in dipsy doodle and all this fancy stuff. I think, you know, I think that St. Louis winning was probably very deserved because they played that yes. kind of hockey. Yeah. Uh, the Bruins, if they would have played that kind of hockey all the way through, they probably, they might've won game seven, Right. but they never had the goalie. And I knew they never had the goalie because he's just not a goalie who will win the big game. And he never has been, you know, <laughs> to Karras. I grew up as a Rangers fan, but then when we moved to Florida, I ended up uh, working for the uh, Florida Panthers. I was their PA announcer for 16 years. And they had, oh, cool. they had, the Canadians had such a following down here because so many people come in and out of Fort Lauderdale and mm-hmm. Canada all the time. So they would take over our building when they'd play here and it would practically become a Montreal home game when they played here. And it was yeah. rather frustrating. I grew to dislike the Canadians a lot during that, that period, but I will tell you a story. Okay. About six years ago when I was working for the team, they hired Pete Mahovlich as one of the uh, player development guys. Mm-hmm. And I was, ran into him in the press box and growing up watching the Rangers all my life. I, I thought, Oh, I got to introduce myself to Pete Mahovlich. And I did. And I shook his hand and I told him who I was and said, I grew up a Rangers fan getting so frustrated watching you and your brother beat up on the Rangers all those years. And mm-hmm. 
Uh, I really admired your play, and I'm a big fan, and it's a thrill to meet you. And he goes, oh, it's great to meet you too, Bill. And I go, number 27. And he, as I'm walking away, and he goes, no, 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 that was my brother. And I go, oh, he's the one I really admired. So, Oh, my God. So we, we our relationship started off with a great laugh, and I just love Pete Mahovlich. And, it, and, and to meet legends at, at that of that degree in hockey is just a – you know, it's as special as meeting my music heroes. Yeah, so I was, you know, I was became you know, I knew Giva Fleur and Wayne Gretzky. I met Gretzky. I've got Gretzky stick and sweater. So you know, <laughs> it, it's like these are and Bobby Orr. Okay, of course, yeah. these are the 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 greats to me. You know, but there's a lot of other greats too. And I'm going to make this one point to you. I made it about music on another interview I was having, but it's just, it's the it's my reasoning. Somebody said to me. You know, Frank, you're so great. You're you're so talented, and you know I want to applaud you. And I said to him, "Never applaud for a guy who's talented, because that's like applauding for someone who's handsome. <laughs> if you're talented, God gave you that gift. It's a gift. You're talented, right? You see, so why would you applaud for someone who's good looking? Well, there you go. And th- and it works in hockey. Like Mike Bossy could score, you know, one time out of four shots. He was a very, very talented player. And you can give him his due and say, great job, Mike, but he's talented. Now, the guy you want to you applaud for is the guy that goes and gets the puck in the corner. He plays bigger than life. He, he works at it. A Bob Gainey is the kind of guy I will yeah. applaud for. Yeah. You know? The guys and, that make the superstars superstars. Yeah, know? so there's the guys that get you to the playoffs, and there's the guys that get you through the playoffs, and those are the guys, I think, that really deserve the applause. So when it comes to the Canadians, I always liked them, but they were always a pretty talented team, right down to the coach, Scotty Bowman. I mean, everybody was talented, you know? Oh, yeah. When I, when I stopped being a Habs fan in 89, it's because... You know, and I got really mad at them. I, I went from being a Habs fan to being a Habs hater for a few years. You know, I'm like trying it was to remember, like, was that uh, the year Ed, eighty nine Edmonton won? Didn't they? No, eighty nine was the year the Montreal Canadiens uh, with Patrick Juan goal lost the Stanley Cup in the form for the first time in history. To Calgary to Calgary, right? Lanny McDonald scored the goal. Oh yeah. So when that happened, I said, "I that's it." Because from nineteen seventy nine to eighty nine, I tried to put up with the way they were changing the team. So they, you know, they got rid of Lafleur, they got rid of Robinson, they made Lafleur quit for three years before he could come back and play with the Rangers in the Nordiques. Mm-hmm. And so they did so many things as an organization that made me mad at them that I decided I'm never going to like this team again. And I'm happy that that happened because it allowed me then to look at all the other teams and I'd never really looked at the other teams quite as closely because they were always the enemy. Yeah. And and then once you start, you're freed from that and you begin to understand just how beautiful the game is and watch a lot of junior games and uh, you get some really good hockey from junior games. Mm-hmm. But now hockey itself has gone to the point where most of the season is really not very good. Yeah, well, it's an 82-game season and you got to keep people healthy. That's the thing. So now yeah, but, a lot of teams phone games in and you probably get 10 or 12 snoozers every season, you know? Right, but the thing is, I, I can understand that maybe you're not going to play quite as hard. You're not going to crack a guy into the boards every game in, in a hockey game because you're not playing once a week. Right. I get it. But it doesn't have to be as bad as it is either. Yeah, sometimes so it it's does at the point bad. now where you've got guys making six, seven, eight million dollars. Defenseman picks up a puck behind the net. He comes around. He's got nobody pressuring him, and he makes a pass to his buddy, and it goes wide and goes for icing. I mean, 
Yeah. If you can't even do that, no, I, why are you getting paid $7 million? Like I said, you're preaching to the choir again. And this is something that I could go on for an hour about. I actually have talked to referees when I've run into them and said, why do you guys let icing get called if a guy just, it's a foot away from him at the red yeah, line? Exactly. I yeah, mean, come exactly. on, just let it go. And it, it's because it slows the game down. And then, so I've been all about that. And my friend, my hockey fan friends think I'm crazy because I get obsessive about Little uh, little uh, minutia about the game, but yeah, I but mean that's the game. So I've always said to people that the the hockey that that's beautiful sport that it is has the most disparity of intensity level from the playoffs compared to the regular season of all the other sports. Yeah, but you see what it's done to the game, Bill. I'll yeah, tell I you, know. I can I can quantify it. I can actually quantify it because I'm going back to when I watched hockey in the fifties and sixties and seventies. Now, yes, it wasn't as fast and all that. That's true, but they had a red line too, you know. The 50s? Wait a minute, you're that old? <laughs> well, I was born in 54, well, okay, so I started so. being, my neighbor was Dickie Moore. So you remember that game you old. saw when you were five? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I remember the games when I was six and seven and eight, because you, yeah, if you watch them on TV, you never got them until the second period. Right, right, right. You didn't get the first period. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the point I'm trying to make is, as hockey has sort of watered itself down under Gary Bettman, What's happened is it's become a game of luck. Now, it's the only professional sport where on almost every single play, there's an element of luck. Absolutely, 100% right. No other sport has that. You no, know, it's true. Baseball, you'll see the odd lucky, you know, ground out bounce or whatever. And in, in, in 160 games, you might see. You're right. Every single pass that gets completed, it's, you're lucky that the puck had a smooth surface that whole, every that whole time. Every play in hockey... Right. And certainly every goal has an element of luck. Yep. But it didn't used to be that way. Exactly right. And you know what? You've also, that part of that quote came from the Panthers GM, Dale Talon, a few years ago when they were facing a game seven in the playoffs. He said, what is the difference in a game seven? What is the difference between winning and losing in a game seven? And he said, "It's at this point, it's all luck. Of so, course. Yeah. And even the players will acknowledge it. They'll say, well, didn't get the bounces tonight. Well, why should there be bounces? Right. So what I'm trying to say is, how can a sport be a professional sport if it's down to this luck thing? Yeah. Why then are we going to see it as if it's something special? That's what bugs me. But when the playoffs come around, ah, all of a sudden there's not quite as much luck. Then it becomes... You have to ask yourself, why is there not quite as much luck in the playoffs? There's luck, but not as much, well, not on just, every single play. It, the playoffs start and the game resumes being the beautiful game that it is. Right. So in other words, the players begin to care. You know what? And a lot of this came, we could get into this, where we came from Europe and, you know, the Finland and the Sweden yeah. guys, because they came over and they're, they're known for playing soft so that they can stay... Right. You know, healthy exactly. for the playoffs. So that's what the, that transformed the NHL a little bit. So if you look at football... NFL, if you look at, my, my God, everything, there, there's no, baseball, there's no huge element of luck in these games. You couldn't take just anybody and, you know, stick them on that baseball team and say, right. go hit that ball. That's true. It, but, but they're wow. pulling kids up from the minors and say, just okay, just fit in, fit in, you know. It shouldn't be able to be that way. Yeah. 
So something's wrong with the game. It's a race to the to the bottom. It's not a race to the top. And if you'll notice, in the old days, we said, who's in first place? Who's in first place? Now we're saying, who's going to make the playoffs? <laughs> we're all watching last place. That's right. That's right. Because if you're in eighth, you're just in as good a shape as anybody else. Right. We're all watching last place. So what's happened here? Yeah. We, well. It's all become skewed. And why? So that they can sell some tickets. Now think about this. You knew Dale Talon. Yep. Dale Talon knew darn well that his chances of winning the Stanley Cup were not the greatest with the team that he had at any one time. Right. But don't you think the other 30 general managers also knew that their chances were not the greatest? There were probably two or three that thought, we can do it this year, right? But the rest of them are not stupid. They're hockey guys. They know. Yeah, and even the other three would be would have, still have to say, if we can get lucky, we can do this. So now put yourself in the place of a, that general manager. He knows that he's probably not going to win a Stanley Cup. Some of them know that they're probably not going to make the playoffs, right? Mm-hmm. But they still have to sell 42 days. So they need entertaining hockey, yep. not necessarily winning hockey. Yep. So they go out and they get players who dipsy-doodle or you know do fancy stuff because it's entertaining. That's why they throw in shootouts and all this stuff. It's nonsense. So they're not actually putting together teams that have a chance of winning. They're, they're putting together teams that only have a chance of entertaining. The problem is that the fans believe they're putting together a team that has a chance of winning. So they're lying to these fans. <laughs> you know, I had kind of put all of this uh, frustration about hockey and the back burner in my mind, and now you're bringing it to the forefront. I'm not going to let you ruin the how beautiful the hockey game still is to me. But Well, go to the junior games like I do. Do you still play at all? Not too old. You know, I'll fool around a little bit. I got three daughters. I rented an arena one day and went skating with them. Oh, there you but, go. You know, but, but the thing is, no, I'm I'm too old. I'm out of shape. Like, forget at about least, it. At least, at least you get on skates every once in a while. But but I'm I'm a student of the game. So you know, if I if I'm talking with a guy like Pierre, like he's a real student of the game. Pierre knows everything about the game. Yeah, and then some. <clears throat> yeah. So I love to get into those conversations where we get into the deeper parts of the game. And I'm not talking analytics. I'm talking about you know the game. Yeah. And uh, I'm not a big analytics fan, other than plus minus and a few other numbers that have been around forever. And even though Peter knows the ins and outs and the X's and O's and how the intricacies of the game, he would be the first to admit that even a lot of what he's talking about comes down to luck. Sure it does. But it also comes down to trust. And I'll tell you what, what you know, how do teams get burned in their end? They get burned on the cycle, right? So yep. somebody cycles down low, yep. they cycle down, they cycle down low, and now the defense is getting tired, they're running around, they're chasing, and then something happens and they get scored on, right? Right. I know how to break the cycle. In order to break the cycle, you've got to break a standing rule in hockey that no one would ever want to break. Get away you know from what that rule is? Getting away from being in front of the net? Exactly. Right. Okay. So if you had a system, you send a D. Instance, I got you. You send a defenseman over to the boards to intercept that cycle. No, move. oh no, even worse, okay. even worse. <laughs> Let's say you've got a you've got a system that you see cycle happen. Uh-huh. You know when it's happening, right? right? Starts right. The goalie recognizes it. He calls an audible. He says cycle. The job now. Every man, every man goes to a man and stands beside him. Right. That means that whoever's got the puck at that moment has no one to give it to. And has to go one-on-one on the goalie. Or one-on-one with the man that's come at him. Because remember, you're outnumbering the team when you're defending. Right. You've got six and they've got five. That's true. So the goalie calls cycle as the quarterback. Everybody moves. That means you have to vacate the front of the net, right? Mm -hmm. But 
Now you do that when the guy who has it is behind you. <laughs> you call cycle. Yep. So the defenseman goes to the man behind. He's the closest. Everyone else goes to a man. Now there's nowhere to pass the puck. At best, your man gets burned by the guy holding the puck, but the goalie knows that, and he should be able to stop a shot. Right. So you've got to trust your goalie. He knows he's going to get a shot, and maybe 1 in 20 will beat him mm-hmm. on that kind of situation. Exactly. But 19 times out of 20, you won't have a cycle. Right. And not only that, but you'll regain possession of the puck. Exactly. That's really That's well- how I'd beat the cycle, but no hockey coach is going to say, yeah, let's break our cardinal rule of moving the defenseman up from in front of the net. Somebody call the NHL. Frank's got a brilliant idea. (laughs) And I think it will work. There's no reason why it shouldn't work. On paper, it looks perfect. That's How how do you get rid of, let's say you got a guy, like Montreal right now, they've got a guy with a cannon on the point, okay, and Shea Weber. Right. It's a dangerous shot. So you got a, they got a power play. How do you beat that? Somebody goes and stands beside Shea Weber. And you defend a four-on-three power play. Yep, you take it out of the equation. There you go. Yeah, he's out of the equation. So let them defend a four-on-three. Now, if I'm Weber's coach, you know what I tell him? Go stand beside another guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Forcing two-on-one, right? Right. Bring that other guy over to another. So it makes a crowd. Exactly. So as long as the crowd is in front of the goalie, you're okay. It becomes a three-on-two power play. Oh. At best, it's going to come become a shot on the goalie. And if you can trust your goalie to take a shot then you won't get scored on. I never imagined that we would get such intricate hockey uh, strategy from Frank Marino as well. This, it's incredible, man. We, we have actually, uh, now that we've done this, I find we have more in common than I even thought we did. So this has uh, yeah. been a thrill. Love the game. Love the game. Uh, Frank Marino live at the, the Agora, Cleveland Agora. It's on DVD, Blu-ray, three DVDs, 180-page book, beautiful package. Frank will even sign it for you. Go to frankmarino.net. How, how, how tired is your hand getting from signing autographs on that oh, thing? Oh, I love it. <laughs> it must feel good every single time yeah, you do I it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's just, look, most of my fans are my friends. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many fans have my phone uh, number. We want to get some strangers in the mix, too, here, Frank. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Because we want to see you do another tour. And any other thing? Did we not cover anything? Because I think I have a feeling you've enjoyed this as much as I did. And is there anything? Oh yeah, very much. So, is there yeah. anything else you want to discuss, or that you think needs to be set straight, or anything like that? No, no, no. It's uh, look. I'll I'll just say the thing I say all the time. You know, we're just we're lucky to be doing what we're doing. All of us musicians, not just me. I'm every band, even I mean, the biggest. Me too. I mean, we're, you know. we're just lucky to be doing what we're doing, and that someone will actually, you know, like what we're doing, and that some people will actually pay us to do what we're doing because we'd all do it for free anyway. So we're not curing cancer. We most certainly are not. Frank, what a treat. I've got a uh, hundred times more out of you than I even expected uh, for you to take this much time. To share all this with us is um, a treat and, again, a, uh, a big full circle moment for me. I'm going to take you up. You uh, said to give you a call. Maybe we'll talk hockey this uh, this fall. I'll be in touch to check on you. I'm around, my man. All right, bud. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Ciao. Hey, you. Yeah, you. I'm talking to you now, the listener. <laughs> Frank Scott. If you've listened to this, much of this interview, I first want to say thank you. And you must be a really big Frank Marino fan for you to want to stick around to hear everything he had to say. I had a hard time finding parts to edit out of it. I found it that compelling to hear what Frank had to say. So that's why it's excessively long. 
flying start to our new season. We'll get as many new artists, old and new artists, on in the next uh, six months or so and squeeze in as many episodes as we can. If you want to get in touch with me, if you're an act or you know an act that should be on this show, Murph at BillMurphyShow.com. Thanks to Zipidi and their wonderful line of digital audio storage devices that are also amazing media players delivering the pristine digital audio that gets onto this uh, MP3. We appreciate all the likes and the shares and the listens and uh, look forward to another episode real soon.